turn in your Bibles, if you would, to a little old book called Revelation. Oh my gosh, people applauded. All right. I want you to notice, first of all, when you turn to the book of Revelation, there is no S at the end. There is no S at the end of Revelation. Okay, I just, it's just one of my pet peeves. There is no S. It's not Revelations. We want to talk about Revelations. No, we are going to talk about Revelation, the book of Revelation. It is a singular revelation from God to John, uh, and it has been, uh, I believe it was Martin Luther who said that the only thing stranger than the beasts and the uh, imagery described in the book of Revelation, the only thing stranger than that are the people commentating on the book of Revelation, because the amount of theories and the amount of hogwash that the church has endured over the years uh, through this book um, is astounding. Uh, if you're familiar with Spirit of Fear Ministries, uh, there's not actually something called Spirit of Fear Ministries. That's what I call it. Uh, that was the way that I grew up. Spirit of Fear Ministries was... Let's do everything we can to scare you into Jesus. Uh, and the best way to do that is to give you a really grainy 1970s video about the end of the world and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. And I will, by golly, by the end of this night, have you not able to sleep. Anybody have that experience growing up as a kid? Let me be the first to raise my hand. If you didn't, you were sheltered and you missed out on a wonderful church experience. But we are not going to do that at all. We are going to look at a letter to the church of Laodicea, and it's Revelation chapter 3. I just wanted to say that at the beginning, because every time you go to the book of Revelation, it's like, all right, we're going to talk about the end. One of the most interesting things about... Um, about the first couple, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation is Jesus is giving direct guidance and direct commendation and rebuke to individual churches. These churches are literal places. They are not metaphorical. They are literal churches in the area of modern Turkey. And they were real places with real people. And Jesus, in his uh, revelation to John about things that are coming, he spends that first beginning segment talking directly to the churches, and he's rebuking and he's commending them for the way that they are doing what they're doing. And it's really encouraging to me to read those because you find out that churches had regional problems that other churches did not. And some churches had strengths that other churches did not, which, to be perfectly honest, is exactly what we've got today. There are things that certain, if you're in different regions of the United States, uh, where there's a really, really strong Mormon context, you're going to have really, really strong uh, issues dealing with, like in Utah, with Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses. Or if you're in the Middle East, you're going to have a really strong outside influence of Islam. Or depending on where you go, whether it's a religion or the sexual ethic of where you live, or 
the uh, standards for family where you live. If you live in an area where polygamy is uh, okay, then, then the church has to deal with that, including men and women in the church that grew up believing this certain lifestyle was okay, and then you come into the church, get the teaching of the Scripture, and you're like, that's not okay. In fact, the early church in Rome was characterized by their sexual ethic because they said, one guy and one girl, period, for the whole life. And it's got to be married. You can't have sex before marriage. You can't have sex outside of marriage. You can't have sex with other married people. You have one woman and one man, period. End of story. And that was really radical. The, The sexual revolution of our culture was really kind of a go I don't, that's not what my sermon's about but the roman world and the in the history of the world has always been perverted because sin has run rampant in this world and so christianity in the beginning one of the one of the things that made them stand out like a city on a hill is a bunch of people repenting of that and coming to christ and just having one husband and one wife the entirety of Western culture was built on this. Not because it was Western culture, but because of the influence of Christianity. As we see that t- torn down and ripped apart and torn into shreds, you see the fabrics of society get all loose and messed up. And it becomes really important for the church to maintain the ethics of Scripture so that we continue to stand and shine like a city on a hill, whether or not the culture around us is in agreement or not. In order for us to shine like a light, we have to do what the things in the Bible tell us. We have to follow the light giver, Jesus. We have to walk in the light, even as He is in the light, in order for us to shine like lights. And right now in our culture, uh, things like the sexual ethic of the Bible, one man, one woman, period, the end, no, nothing else, shines like a light, doesn't it? It also shines like a light that attracts ugly attention and negative attention. And you and I have to be willing to accept that because nobody likes being told that they're wrong really had nothing to do with my sermon. I was just trying to give you some background. The church of Laodicea, here in Jesus' address, it's the final church he addresses. It's the only one of the seven churches that gets zero positive press. Jesus has nothing good to say about Laodicea depending on whichever eschatology or uh, eschatological tradition you come from. That's just a fancy way of saying whatever your beliefs are about the end times. Um, There are people who say, we're living in the age of Laodicea, Laodicea, and they try to break up history into the different seven ages of the church. I don't know if that's right or if that's not, but what I do know is correct is that this was a real church that had a real warning. And before we read, actually, let's go ahead and read uh, verses 14 through uh, 22, and then we'll get started a little more clearly. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for the beginning or the end of this book that says there is a blessing for those who read it. Lord, I pray that that blessing would come upon us as we hear what you are saying to the churches and to this church as we reflect on the Laodicean church. God, help me to speak and communicate in a way that is pleasing to you and beneficial to everybody else. And Lord, I pray you would, all, you would give all of us ears to hear what you are saying. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to read for you something quickly about the area of Laodicea. And just so you know, uh, the book of Colossians, uh, the city of Colossae, and the city of Laodicea, and there's another city in there, it starts with an H that's hard to pronounce, Hierapolis. Uh, those cities were all kind of close together, kind of like Huntington and Ironton and Ashland. Very, very similar type of setup. Just cities in the community, everybody was familiar with everybody else and was connected. And that's going to have something important a little bit later. But Laodicea, this is, uh, this is from Steve, uh, Steve Gregg's book, uh, Commentary on the Book of Revelation. He says, by all accounts, Laodicea was a very prosperous city in John's day, and it was noteworthy on a couple of accounts. It was a banking center, which is obviously related to general wealth. Laodicea also was a producer of black wool clothing and carpets. The city was the location of a famous medical school and the product of a powerful substance used to treat ailments of the eye. It's very interesting based on what Jesus says. The city's water supply originated from hot springs six miles away. In the process of traveling through the aqueduct to Laodicea, the water became tepid, neither hot nor cold. Interesting. It was a part of uh, the Roman Empire, and the water for these aqueducts were actually underground so that uh, whenever there was war, they couldn't take advantage of the aqueducts. And the water ran six miles into Laodicea, which was a wealthy center, as you just heard, with banking and black wool, which uh, was for the, uh, the hoity-toity amongst them. Uh, and it was also a place with medical breakthroughs, including an eye salve. And there's all kinds of interesting stuff about that. But for this morning, I want you to be aware that because of the culture, like we were just discussing earlier, 
because of the culture of prosperity and because of the culture of um, probably a certain intellectualism that went along with the medical school and it attracted uh, higher grade merchants because of the black wool and all of that. Laodicea was a very comfortable place and the church was infected by that because everybody in that church was in that community. And if you're in a community, you are affected by what you are surrounded by. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Um, how many of you have lived in different places in the world or in the United States? I know several of you have and have had conversations. It's interesting, but if you, if you take a southern uh, West Virginia person and you drop them in New England for 10 years, do they still sound like they're from Mingo County? The answer is no, they don't. Now, do they still have Mingo County in them? Yes, they do. Because you can take the person out of Mingo County, but you can't, this is for Lee and Samantha, but you can't take the Mingo County out of, out of the person. But, but when you move, or if you take somebody from New England and drop them in Dallas, Texas, do they stay the same in 10 years? No! It, we, are, we are creatures that adapt to our surroundings, and that isn't the, necessarily just the weather. We adapt to the culture around us. This is true if you went to England or Australia, or if you, if you went anywhere in the world. You would adapt to the culture that you are around, and you would start picking up their words and their idioms and their phrases and this is something in a spiritual sense that is deadly because we pick up and adapt to the culture that is around us. And that is what Jesus said about the Laodiceans that they had completely capitulated to the culture that they had lived in. And I'm ahead of myself, so let me back up. Let's look at verse 14 a little closer. The angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen. This is Jesus dictating, and he's saying, I want this written to the angel or to the leader of this church in Laodicea. The words of the Amen. Jesus refers to himself as the Hebrew, so be it. The words of the eternal, so be it. Jesus. That is a really cool way to describe himself. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, I wanted to pause here because I think Christian doctrine is really important. I want you to realize that Christian doctrine is really important. A number of years ago, Rob Bell wrote a book called Velvet Elvis. It was all the rage amongst the cool kids. Uh, the cool kids were known as the emerging church. And in Velvet Elvis, he describes the, what he believed Christian doctrine should be looked at as. He said, you can do it in a fundamentalist way, which is a brick wall that provides a foundation. And if you start pulling out bricks, then the house comes down. He's like, no, 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 we don't want that. I want you to view Christian doctrine as a trampoline where a spring pops off, but you can still bounce. 
How many of you have had this experience? Everybody's jumped on a trampoline and the springs went off right beside your head and you're thankful that you didn't die a horrible death by trampoline spring. One time when we were in high school, and I don't know how we survived outside of God's specific and special grace, uh, there were about 25 of us guys on a trampoline jumping, and I don't know, I think they made them different than the ones you buy now. Because, But I remember springs going, bling, bling, flying up in the air, and that's when we quit. Um, because you can still bounce on a trampoline if springs fall off. You just, it's still, it's still stable. And Rob Bell was trying to say that it, if the spring of the doctrine of the virgin birth pops off the trampoline, that shouldn't ruin somebody's faith. Okay, some of you are looking at me correctly, which is, whoa, that's crazy talk. And it is crazy talk. But our world that's pluralistic and, and loves the postmodern idea that there is no such thing as truth. So we can just have little dabbles of truth here and there, and that's all that we really need. We don't need the virgin birth necessarily. We don't necessarily have to have the resurrection, or do we? Do we have to have the inerrancy of Scripture? I think we do. Do we have to have the idea that there is a trinity? Yes, we do. The the doctrines of the church, of the Bible are essential to our faith because we cannot make a God in our own image. We are specifically forbidden from bringing God down to what we want Him to be and fashioning a Jesus of our own liking. And that's what happens when doctrines get thrown out the window. The doctrine specifically that I think is really important here is an old heresy. And the old heresies will really tell you something. The old heresies get recycled all the time. There is nothing new under the sun. And there was this old heresy called the Arian heresy. And the Arian heresy was, Jesus is not God. He is the beginning of God's creation. You see that phrase right here in Revelation uh, 3.14. He's not actually God. He's the beginning of creation. And if you look at Colossians 1.15, you see that, uh, and I think Daryl may have that one, um, you see that he's the firstborn of all creation. The Arian heresy, uh, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The Arian, Arian heresy says Jesus is a creation of God. He is not a creation of God. Jesus is God. So before we go any further, I just let's do a little doctrinal checkup and go to John one one. And everybody, you can turn there if you would. John one one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now go, if you would, to Colossians 1.15, which Daryl was already there. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him... 
all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is God, and yet you are seeing these phrases, the firstborn of all creation, and what Jesus says of himself in Revelation. He says that uh, he is the beginning of God's creation. So stopping so we can all think for a second. The word beginning also means origin. In Greek, you can make this word go in either direction. But the idea that is being communicated, and this is what historical Christian orthodoxy has taught for 2,000 years, and there was this really horrible Arian heresy that about killed all kinds of people. Uh, But the beginning or the origin of God's creation, Jesus is, according to John chapter 1, 1, all things were made through Him. Jesus is God and Creator. And so, the beginning of God's creation or the origin of God's creation, He is saying, I am the Creator. I am the origin of creation. And you see that in Colossians 1.15 where it says that He's the first. It then goes on to say, for all things were made through Him. Now, if that doesn't help you, I want you to go with me to Revelation chapter 5. And I want you to see what John sees in the book of Revelation when the scroll comes out. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. To him who sits on the throne is a reference to the Father and unto the Lamb is a reference to Jesus. And what happens next? be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Jesus receives the same identical worship that the Father receives in Revelation chapter 5. If Jesus is a mere creature, He is not receiving that worship. It would be idolatry to worship a creature. Correct? We are commanded not to. The Bible, is, the Bible is clear. Jesus is God. But sometimes when you run across these phrases, I think it's important to stop and say, all right, let's do a doctrine check. What do we do with this sentence? And just to bring it home all the way, if you go to Revelation chapter 19, I want you to see what happens. Revelation 19 verse 11 when John tries to worship a creature. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written... Wait, I'm, I'm in the wrong spot. Verse 9. That's okay, those are good verses. But let's go to verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. He fell down at the feet of the angel to worship the one who had delivered the message. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When John tried to worship an angel, a creature, an exalted being, he was rebuked. Don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant like you. Worship God. And you saw in Revelation 5 that Jesus received the exact same worship that the Father on the throne received. So, if you go all the way back to Revelation 3, when Jesus self-identifies as the beginning of God's creation, He's saying, I am the origin of of the creation, and I have a message for you. It's not a good one. So let's get into the message. I know your works. Notice he does not say, I know your heart. (laughs) Sorry, I said to throw that out there. He says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. Because what you're doing is a reflection of your heart. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Now, we read that about Laodicea and about the spring, the hot spring that's six miles away, piping in the water. Colossae actually had cold water springs, by the way. So we have in this little area a place where this imagery would have made sense. You're not hot like your neighbors over here. You're not cold like they are in Colossae. You are tepid, room temperature, lukewarm, gross. It's like when you drink coffee in the morning, as every one of you should be doing as faithful followers of Jesus, when you drink coffee in the morning and it's lukewarm, it's kind of not nearly as, you want it hot, or hot tea, you want it to be hot. Nobody seeks out tepid, lukewarm. If you do, we will have a special prayer service for you. I'm not sure what's wrong with you, but tepid, gross, but specifically, he's if, if the imagery is following what's going on in Laodicea and you've got water that's growing lukewarm as it travels six miles through an aqueduct, which I'm sure in the first century was perfectly sanitary and pristine. I can only imagine what this thing was like. Because you are neither hot nor cold, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold... I will spit you out of my mouth. The word that Jesus used, they churched it up here in the ESV. The word is literally vomit. It, it's not a polite at the dentist office, swish around and spittle. It is, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I don't know about how you feel. But if Jesus came to me with a direct message and it was, Steve, I'm going to vomit you out. 
wouldn't feel real good about that. But that is what they are being told. And here is why this is how Jesus describes their lukewarmness. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. The the community they lived in was wealthy, was cosmopolitan, it had medical schools, it was it was a cultured place. They weren't a bunch of heathens and barbarians. It was a cultured place. They had money. Their view of themselves was we are rich, we've prospered, we don't need anything. And then Jesus says something, says a word that you should zero in on, which this phrase, not realizing. You are unaware of what you really are. As Jim Gilmore once wisely said, for, I know not very many of you know who that is, somebody I went to church with who played an accordion. He played that on Sunday mornings. It was the coolest thing in the world. Have you ever seen an accordion in a praise and worship band? You have not. But I have, because I grew up in a church where a guy is up there playing the accordion in a worship song. It was awesome. I wish we had video from back then. But Jim Gilmore, with... Uh, with his accordion playing, he had a wise saying, and it was this, the problem with deceived people is they're deceived. If you know you're deceived, then you cease being deceived, right? The moment you realize that you're wrong, you cease being wrong, correct? That's the way it works. The problem with Laodicea is they think that they're rich. They think that they're prospering. They think They need nothing. They don't realize that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They think they are put together. Their church is in order. They think that they're serving Christ correctly. They think everything is great. And Jesus says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, That means we should all feel sorry for you. Poor, blind, and naked. So to a a town that's prideful about its clothing, and prideful about its eye salve, and prideful about its banking industry, Jesus says, you ain't got no money, you ain't got no clothes, and you can't see. He is driving home to them in their culture, and in their context, that they aren't anywhere close to where they think they are. Verse 18, Jesus provides hope. I counsel you. If you want some counseling, this is the best counseling you can get. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, here, here's my question. If Jesus tells me that you are pitiable, 
wretched, poor, blind, and naked, where am I getting the money to buy gold and garments and eye salve from Jesus? I don't know if you've thought of that as you've read this. That's what I was thinking. Where am I getting the money, Jesus? You just told me to come to you and get refined gold, refined in fire. There's clearly an allusion to Peter when he says that your faith being tested by fire like more precious than gold. Your faith and your lifestyle is going to be salted with fire as a Christian. You're going to go through difficulties. And if you are a lukewarm Christian, you're not going to have refined faith that's burnished like gold. You are going to have something that burns up and falls apart because you don't have genuine faith. So I I get an idea of what Jesus is probably saying. And when he says white garments, he's not talking about the fancy garments that they're making in Laodicea. He's talking about robes of righteousness alien righteousness that comes from Jesus that he robes me in. He's telling me that's what I need. And he's telling me that the shame of my nakedness and my sin will be covered and taken care of. And I need that. And salve, real salve, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes, the power of God to see the gospel so that we are no longer blind to our sin, but recognize it. I know that's what Jesus is saying. So how do I get it if the first thing you told me was I don't have any money? Verse 19 helps us answer that. Those whom I love, I reprove and disciplined. I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus, I believe, is telling us what the Bible tells us throughout all of the New Testament, that you buy something from Jesus not with gold, not with good works, not with efforts, not with New Year's resolutions to do better, to read the Bible more, though that's important. But you and I are dependent on Jesus for all of these things, and He tells us, those whom I love... I come to and discipline. Laodicea, church that thinks they have it all together, I am bringing that discipline to you now and calling you to repent. Return to me. Come to me and get what you need. Come to me and get refined faith and get true garments of righteousness and get eye salve that you can see. Get it from me by repentance by turning your life back to me. And then the famous verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, I have heard this in evangelist sermons a lot. In other words, somebody preaching to a crowd of unbelievers and he tells the crowd, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and knocking. Has everybody heard that before? 
I think we've all heard that. But when you read it and where this is coming from, you find out that is not written to people outside the church. This is written to a church. Jesus is on the outside of this church knocking on the door. He's not in their church. He's outside. He wants in. And He says, If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with Me. When Jesus is dealing with people that are lukewarm, He's calling them to repent, but it isn't in some harsh, horrible way. You filthy Laodiceans, well, He did say, I want to vomit you out of My mouth. But He then also says, those whom I love, I discipline. Jesus doesn't want to vomit them out of His mouth. He wants them to open the door and let Him in. That is what He is commanding from them. He's knocking and He's saying, if you hear Me, open the door. How do you apply this? It's actually pretty simple, I think. I wanted to preach this this morning just as a message really of encouragement to say, open your heart to Jesus. This, open your heart and repent if you find yourself just going through the motions, thinking everything's okay, Repent and return to Christ. Get from Him the gold and the garments and the eye salve. Get from Jesus really what He's talking about. Coming in and eating with us. Fellowshipping with us. Jesus wants His people to be with Him in fellowship on a regular basis. My entire life I've heard people talk about It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. Heard that my entire life. By a bunch of people that aren't necessarily even serving Jesus today. And why did that happen? Because their definition of relationship meant really good church services with really good praise and worship for three hours where people were falling in the floor. And that's their definition of really good relationship. And that's really all that it was. The definition of relationship with Christ as a Christian that is submitted to His Word on a daily basis. I know I've said this a lot this year, but church, we, we must be people not like Laodicea that thinks, I've heard those sermons before, I've read that before, I'm fine in my walk with God. Don't, if you are thinking that way, you are wrong. We are, it's not right to think, I can see everything's great when you do not realize that you are poor, pitiable, wretched, blind, naked. That, that happens, that creeping death, not the Metallica song, but the creeping death of complacency and lethargy It creeps in all the time. And if there was ever a country where where we're susceptible to it, it's America. 
If there was ever a culture where we are susceptible to lethargy and complacency, the only, only thing I know to do as, a, as your pastor is to preach sermons like this, to just say, come on everybody, let's not be this. Let's repent, let's, let's make sure that our hearts are with the Lord on a regular basis. And if they're not, I've got wonderful news. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. If God is convicting you, if God is wor- if you feel unsettled and unsatisfied, great! Allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart to draw you to Him. I think that is what Jesus is telling the church at Laodicea. And I think we can take from that something into our own lives and our own walk with God and say, I don't want to be guilty of assuming that I'm pretty okay. I need God's grace daily. I need His bread daily. I need His fellowship daily. And this morning, as we close, we're going to receive communion. And I thought this would be a wonderful time for you and for me as a church that wherever you are, in your walk with the Lord, this could be a Sunday morning where you say, Lord, I don't want to be blind, pitiable, poor, naked. I don't want to be unaware of my condition. I want my heart to be on fire for you. So I want to have everybody stand up. And if you haven't taken communion elements, they are actually right out here in the hallway. And I want to give everybody a chance to go grab those if you don't have them already. And as you do have them, you do have these. I want everybody just to, to close your eyes if you would. The point of this meal in remembrance of Him is to remember that He purchased for us a salvation that we could not purchase. That is really the point of that verse. When Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me, you've got to go to Him to get everything. You of your own self can do nothing. The Gospel message is simply this. I was born a sinner. I was born separated from God. I was born a rebel against Him. And because He loved me first, before I loved Him, 
He pursued me. He came after me. He came after you. And He did that by dying on the cross, being raised from the dead. He suffered for our sin. He suffered the wrath of God in punishment for the sins of the world so that when He comes to you in His love by the power of the Holy Spirit and breaks down your resistance and you respond to Him in faith, you receive robes of righteousness that you did not earn. You receive a right standing with God. His love is poured into your heart. It floods your soul by the Holy Spirit who is poured out on us. We celebrate that beautiful truth that we are His through His broken body, which is the bread, and through His shed blood of the new covenant, which is the cup that we're taking. If you're a Laodicean Christian this morning, repent and be zealous and do good works. Repent this morning and and say, Lord, I return to You. Set my heart on fire for You, Lord. Open my eyes that I may see. Let's take this together. Let's take a moment here. Just thank Him for His work. Lord, we thank You today for the powerful work of Your Spirit. God, I pray that You would help all of us to see that as Your children, we are called to be zealous, to be repentant in our heart and our lifestyle, to open the door to let You in, regular, consistent fellowship. God, help us not through the strength of our will, try to do great things, but Lord, by relying on Your grace and Your strength, we would do great things for Your kingdom and for the sake of Your name and Your glory. Lord, we worship You. We worship You this morning. God, we thank You for Your goodness and Your extended mercy to us. Let us be individually lights where we ever, wherever we live or work and let this church be a light in this community. We thank you for it today in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. You are officially dismissed. Tell somebody you love them as you exit the building. We will see you next time.